0: Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is C.K. Lin. Noble Warrior is where interview multi-dimensional entrepreneurs about their journey. what well, deconstruct their mindset, mental models, and actionable tactics so you can take them and build your life and business with more impact and fulfillment. If you have any friends who could use better mindset, go ahead and share this with them on social media so they too can benefit from your discovery. My next guest is Mitzi Perdue. She's the daughter of the person who founded the world-famous Sheraton Hotel chain. She's also the widow of Frank Perdue of Purdue Chickens. She's the founder of Windows Fight Stop Human Trafficking Now. Our conversation was cut short due to a technical glitch. If you want to follow up with her, go ahead and text Mitzi at 51555 with the word WTF. We talked about why she's still working hard and dedicating her life at 80 years old. We talked about how she used wrongness to attract attention for the right cause. She talked about a counterintuitive but a brilliant way to combat human trafficking rings and why storytelling is her weapon of choice for the impact she wants to make in the world. She talked about the number one skill of success. The founder of the Sheraton Hotel passed down to his daughter, who's Mitzi. And she also talked about the specific tactics the founder of the Sheraton hotel did to boost employee morale during the great depression. Lastly, we talked about how to cultivate grace and presence as a mindset. Please enjoy my conversation with Mitzi Perdue, the founder of When This Fight Stop Human Trafficking Now. Please welcome Mitzi Perdue.
1: Hi, what a joy to be here and hi everybody.
0: So thank you so much for being here. So excited to have you. When I first encountered you, right away, I felt, wow, this woman is a woman of wisdom and joy and grace and dignity. So thank you for being here.
1: My Lord, you just mentioned all the things I'd like to be or aspire to be. (laughs) So thank you.
0: You're so welcome. So let's jump right into it because I know that you have limited time. So um, you were very blessed to be born into a legacy family. You had a career of 22 years. You have authored eight books. You're about to turn 80. Why do you continue to you know, do this type of work? And you could easily be vacationing somewhere else, do nothing and relax for the rest of your life. Why do you continue to um, you know, get up in the morning and do what we're doing right now?
1: Okay, in truth, I asked myself that question, too, because life would be just so much easier if I sat back and watched and binged on Netflix or whatever. But I'll tell you what keeps me going. The passion that I have for how I want to spend the rest of my years, and I hope there are quite a few, is combating human trafficking. And when I think that if I have one chance of helping one person, that I should get out of bed and, and keep doing what I'm doing, But the project that I'm working on, it has the capacity, potentially collaborating with a great many others, of saving millions of lives. And I'd make a guess about our audience that a lot of people who are in the audience may not be totally familiar with what human trafficking is. I mean, some will, but can I take a moment to explain why why it gets me out of bed in the morning? Please do. Okay, I got into this about, oh, roughly 2 years ago i heard a lecture and before that time the words human trafficking would just sort of glide by they didn't yeah they're just words but then i saw in this lecture photographs of little girls who there there might have been a dozen of them and they were probably 10 to 12 years old and the photographs were catching them just before they were rescued well i got to see the look on their faces and their faces were sort of frozen in fear, terror, despair. And they're young girls, like 10 to 12 years old. Well, the story has a happy ending because they were rescued, but those little girls for months or years before they had been raped like 10, 20 times a night. And yeah, the amount of suffering that that must involve is just unthinkable. And, you know, there's a quote that, that, i memorized from mother Teresa, mother Teresa said that it's immoral to be discouraged by the size of a problem, the good that you can do, you must do. And I kind of figured that I could do something, you know, even if it's small, but that I, sh- if I can do it, I should do it.
0: Thank you for that. I, I really appreciate it. Um, what a contrast, right? The 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 how your background is a very how do I say very uh a very privileged privileged background and 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 now you saw <clears throat> something of a tremendous human suffering and want to devote your life to it. So I do have a question before we dive into it deeper into this issue of uh, human trafficking. There are a million other causes though. There may you know maybe hunger issues or homelessness. How did this particular issue? really, you know, like landed for you in the heart.
1: All right. I have a purpose in life and that's to Mm. increase happiness and decrease misery. Mm -hmm. And I'm unaware of any greater misery than, than somebody, well, slavery to begin with the United Nations says there's more than 40 million people who are enslaved today. Wow. By the way, if you're in slavery, you never have a happy day. Mm. And then I think it's about 8 million who are sex trafficked. And, and by the way, it happens to men as well as women. But can you simply imagine? I mean, it, it's almost too dark a place to go to. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in, in great transparency that uh, I almost limit myself to the amount that I let myself think of how deep the suffering is because I think I just go crazy. Yeah. But so I try to think of what I can what I can do about it as opposed to how huge the problem is.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a path, the path of a healer, the path of it's, you're carrying on other people's burden from, from my point of view. And, and for someone like you, who's full of light and joy, it's, it's, that's why I was curious to know why is it that you wanted to basically go through the opposite, I don't know, but this continuum to basically to go to the darkest place of essentially human suffering. Well, you know? it's,
1: it's, it's so far beyond anything that i had ever heard of. I mean, like, Oh, I let's move on to happier things as soon as I finish this part, but I'm aware of, of like snuff movies where people will pay a great deal amount of money to see a two-year-old raped to death or mm. put in a cage and set in fire. I mean, the amount of evil and suffering it's, I I don't think that. I don't think that at least somebody who has any caring, it's awful hard to turn your back on that. Except you can turn your back on it if you think there's nothing I can do. But I have got ways which I'm going to recommend to our friends things that they can do that won't cost them a penny, but that will make a difference.
0: Mm. Well, that's that's intriguing. Uh, what Met are you meant yeah, to be? Yeah, yeah. Let, let's. Yeah, why don't we why don't we go there and then I have some follow up questions for you as well.
1: Perfect. Mm-hmm. Okay, Well, I do a lot of speaking on this subject. Uh, I mean, I bet I bet in the last two years I've given a hundred talks on it, and this is partly about fundraising, but it's also about awareness raising. And my particular approach is, I don't know anything about rescuing a child or freeing somebody from slavery. Uh, I certainly don't know how to treat them. So. I thought, you know, what can I bring? What can I bring in this struggle? And I thought, well, I've got a lifetime in communications. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had almost forty years in, uh, in radio, television, and newspapers. So I know a lot of people in media. Mm-hmm. And from my point of view, what I can what I can offer is I can offer awareness, and I can offer fundraising.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And those that means that I'm. That any anti-trafficking organization that exists, I'm here to help you raise money, I'm, help, I'm here to help you raise awareness. So I don't compete with anybody else. I help meet some of their needs. And even if it's in a small way, if you can, if a person can help an anti-trafficking organization, now first through volunteering, which would be wonderful and I recommend it to everybody, but it also counts. if it also counts if you can raise funds for them. And that means, yeah, the more funds they have, the less time they have to spend raising funds themselves, and the more time they can spend delivering services. And then finally, I've done articles probably by now on 100 different anti-trafficking organizations. Mm -hmm. And every one of them would like to have more awareness of the problem. Well, I, as somebody who is a professional writer and has spent, there, there was a period that where I was the most widely syndicated writer on the environment in the country, so I do have background in writing, so I can I can help spread the word. But yeah. what I can but what I can do most of all, where I would most like to involve our listeners or our viewers, our audience, is I would love for them to offer. I, I don't particularly want their money, although I'd sure as heck not turn it down. But I would love them to volunteer. And right now they are close to 500 volunteers, and I make a pledge to anybody who wants to do something about human trafficking, that I will never ask you for more time than you want to give or more money than you want to give. But should you choose to donate time, here's a promise to you. I will do everything that I know how to match your interests and your skills and abilities and passions to the job that you get. And mm. you'll be given a whole menu of of things that you could volunteer for. And, mm. and I know from the people who are working on it, they say it's some of the most satisfying work they ever do because the very darkness of human trafficking means that if you can make any difference, you're making a huge difference. Yeah. So I'm breaking it down for people. I'm giving people ways of helping to a- attack this problem. And my first recommendation is, Find an existing anti-trafficking organization to work for. But if you don't have one, join me and I'll I'll give you jobs that will be very meaningful and exciting. And some of the people who work with the organization is called Win This Fight. Mm -hmm. Some of the people who, who joined together collaborating in this say that it's some of the most satisfying work they've ever done.
0: For those of you interested uh, to follow with Mitzi, I'm gonna promote your um, your your newsletter again. Te- text 51555 with WTF. Okay.
1: I bet you've got a slight curiosity why sweet little old lady Mitzi would be using WTF in Go my text. Okay, I would love to. I am eager to share this story because when I started when when I started getting involved in, in wanting to help combat human trafficking. I had a name for the organization. It was called the antitraffickingauction.com. A couple of weeks into it, I got I got a phone call from a guy who's a neuroscientist. Uh, not only is he a neuroscientist, he's a neuromarketer. He's studying, you know, everything you can think about why you make decisions and what your instincts and just, you know, he's got a whole host of knowledge about how people make decisions. this gentleman i've since become really good friends with him he started out by telling me mitzi your name the anti-trafficking auction sucks well i loved that because he explained why he Mm. said first of all it's not memorable Mm. Uh, and i kind of have to agree with him it's not memorable he says there's no call to action Mm. and he said a really good thing if you're trying to get attention is to have some wrongness in it. Mm. You know, something that sort of grates, or if it, I don't, I don't really want to grate on anybody, but it, you know, there's an incongruity between lady like Mitzi using the acronym WTF for win Mm. this fight, And he said, that's perfect because Mm. there's enough of a contrast between how you act and how you are. And Mm. you know, WTF, uh, um, Can we count and everybody know what WTF stands for when you're not thinking win this fight?
0: I mean, Uh, that's the obvious, right? What the fuck? Yeah.
1: Yes. Thank you for saying it. I mean, I'd say it too, but my image, my image. Anyway, he said that that it was just straight out from heaven to have the name win this fight because it's a call to action.
0: Mm. And,
1: you know, who can forget WTF?
0: Mm-mm. yeah it's true i mean my natural reaction hearing the stats around um human trafficking the natural H- reaction is what the wtf
1: yeah i'm still having trouble saying it but I'll, i have no problem saying wtf <laughs> oh come on we're good for I'll say, yeah
0: I'll, I'll say it for you it's all good I'm, okay. I'm
1: wondering whether i should work up my courage and actually no, see if i can no. do it i don't know if i can it's do okay. it
0: and okay.
1: I'm
0: just, well, death, not yeah, not for
1: the cause. What the fuck? Yeah, there <laughs> no, I know. studied it on
0: air. Ah! Yeah, so so you've been studying this, uh, you know, hundred different approaches to solve human trafficking. I'm curious to know: have you come across anyone that you're like really, really promising? Yeah, you know. So go ahead, share with us.
1: Okay, this to me the most exciting one, and I actually had something to do with. I mean, if it gets put into practice. I had something to do with with if it works, and and I'll share with everybody what it is. It's it's it isn't really public yet, but here goes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm in I'm in favor, and I endorse any anti-trafficking activity, you know, whether it's rescue or prevention or rehabilitation. You know, they're all needed, and I think they'll be needed for years and years and years. But what if we could prevent it? And I had the huge honor and privilege earlier this, well, late last year of addressing the international fraud group. And I have to tell a little side story and then just take it on faith that I will wrap it up and bring it back to human trafficking. Go for it. Thank you. Somewhere around 20 or 30 years ago, one of the larger software companies, and I'm I'm not supposed to say their name, so I won't, but just think large software company. They're having a terrible problem with Counterfeiters, because they might, you know, put hundreds, well, millions of dollars into software, and then sell it for a couple of hundred dollars. But a counterfeiter, for the price of a disc, which might be five cents, could sell. You know, it costs them five cents, and they're making a couple of hundred dollars on it by just perfectly counterfeiting the software. Well, the company, you know, of course, wanted to shut down the the counterfeiters. But they, they kept finding that every time they would put somebody in jail, somebody else would quick pop up and, and do the same thing because it was so profitable. And so they, they, they really weren't making a dent in, in their counterfeiting or, or pirating problem until there's a group, it's called the International Fraud Group. The International Fraud Group went to the software company and said, "Uh, there's a better way. We need to get at the incentives that make people want to do pirating. Let's take the incentives away. And by the way, I'll I'll jump ahead and tell you that the same principle I'm about to describe now can apply to human traffickers. But the International Fraud Group went to the large software company and said, we have a lot of expertise and ability to look at the dark web to look at use artificial intelligence to use covert activities in one way or another, we can track the bank accounts of the of the pirates of the software counterfeiters and you know hire us to do this and and let's see what happens. well here's what happened. they would get the software guys, the pirates who were you know making millions of dollars but they'd locate their bank accounts. And frequently it took a lot to get to their bank accounts because it would be one shell company, and I'm making this up, but maybe the Cayman Islands or Liechtenstein or or who knows what, but they had the ability to track the money until they could get to the bank where where it was being hidden and then go to the bank and then show them just, you know, with enormous clarity, you know, total proof, this money that you're handling is hot. Uh, freeze the guy's account and yeah you know, the threat underneath it was if you don't freeze it uh you're going to get terrible publicity and maybe fines for money laundering so the banks were always you know, eager to cooperate because what bank wants to be accused publicly of money laundering mm. so the the international fraud group would uh freeze the account seize the money re- give it back to the person it really belonged to, which was the large software company. And Mm, mm. in a fairly short time, the motivation for the, for the pirates was, was to make money and suddenly, yeah, they're making money, but it's going right back to the software company. They can't Mm. use it. And they, they destroyed the, uh, the incentive behind pirating and I mean, they effectively ended pirating. Mm, mm. Well, what if that same principle were applied to human trafficking except it's a much bigger problem software piracy is in the millions human trafficking is in the billions i mean there there's i've heard estimates that there are 150 billion dollars made each year out of human trafficking but that means that there are a lot of bank accounts that can be frozen mm. and so, I, I, said, I had the privilege of giving this keynote to the International Fraud Group. And I asked, you know, might this be of interest to them? And how about, yeah, it was. Okay, that's part one. Part two mm-hmm. what, I don't want to name the, the, uh, the anti trafficking organization yet, because we're still mm-hmm. kind of figuring out how much we can work together.
2: Correct. But
1: one of the very largest anti trafficking organizations in the United States, anyway has a lot of uh, the kind of database where it would make it really fast to find the traffickers. And the International Fraud Group has the dark web, the uh, covert operations, just a whole lot of skill in finding bank accounts. And then there's one of the largest banks maybe in the world. And again, I don't want to mention the name yet because we're, we're still in the discussion stage, but they're enthusiastic about it. So what if these, what if, The International Fraud Group represents 47 different countries. The huge American uh, anti-trafficking organization has possibly the largest database in the world. Mm. So what if you could put that together? And then with a bank that's excited about this, I mean, maybe we we could really make a difference in Mm. taking away some of the incentives for trafficking.
0: I like that a lot. Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, when it comes down to it, uh, I mean, I hate to say this. It is a business for the 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 human traffickers, right? For them, you know maybe they're commodities or human beings, but it is for them, it's about revenue and profit generating. So if you go after directly what they are interested in, um it's going to hurt the most per se versus you know you do the rehabilitation or the rescue missions and so forth. to me, there's you go higher stream to actually address the source of the 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 core of the problem rather than the symptoms yeah I, th-
1: I think most people would agree that what motivates the traffickers I mean they're probably psychopaths and they you know they're just bad mm-hmm. nasty people but but I think what they're in it for is money and what if we could block their accounts
0: yeah uh, and
1: and yeah uh, no. you know, i I just said a what if but there are a lot of people who are agreeing on this that and it you know i want to I just want to say ahead of time that it, it, it won't be smooth sailing to get from here to there but there's some really really smart people working on on how to do it so I think i'm I'm hopeful that it won't solve the problem but it could make a huge stand i
0: I agree hundred percent so if you don't mind kind of explain the economics of it a little bit i'm a, I'm an entrepreneur so I'm curious to know how to actually make this sustainable per se right so is the international frog group a Coalition, a nonprofit, or a corporation, and just a, a, a group of volunteers. Like how? how like okay, how it's absolutely really not volunteers.
1: Board? This is a professional organization of people okay. who have some extraordinary specialized skills. Okay. And I'm going to throw out a figure which won't be completely accurate, but I'm sure it's directionally a- accurate.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I believe I know some of the members of this who are making a quarter of a million dollars a year, mm-hmm. and. They, they can't do it for free because mm-hmm. you know, they've got kids to put through college and mortgages to pay. Mm-hmm. So they can't do it for free much as they'd like to. So they do need, well, I'll tell you what my dream is. They do need a backer. And I think for $10 million, we could make an unbelievably huge impact on, on human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And for what would keep it be sustainable is when you freeze those bank accounts, what if it were just stipulated ahead of time? Five percent goes to the the umbrella organization that pays the the experts in this.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: so I, I think the business model is sound. And you know, my prayer is that somebody listening up to us today, maybe maybe they're head of a large foundation, maybe they're or maybe they're a corporation that could really, really use some good PR. Nike, are you listening to me? Mm
2: -hmm,
1: Uh, Yeah. What what big corporation or foundation wouldn't like to be the one that made the biggest stint in human trafficking?
0: For $10 million? Exactly. Okay,
1: That's the hope. And uh, I don't know what will happen. But if you you don't try, you don't have a chance. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take.
0: I really love it. Thank you so much for sharing that idea. And I think that's a very scalable idea as well. So. Um,
1: and by the way, I, I mentioned that I'm looking for volunteers. You wouldn't believe the range of skills that we can make use of in this. You know, it's writing press releases or, I don't know, managing websites or uh, public speaking, just volunteering on a local level. There's, the project is so big. It's $150 billion a year object that we're after. Mm-hmm. I, I pretty much think that almost any skill a person has, we will eagerly make use of.
0: So, so change your topic a bit, if you don't mind. You've been an author. You've been a journalist. You're a thought leader and you're a you know, rising thought leader in the human trafficking world. And you've been on a podcast guest for 90 something times last year. So, what's your thought about the role of authors or storytellers in our social media world today as a way to solve problems? Right.
1: Well, I'm as big a believer in that as, as a person can be. Because, first of all, you know, the essence of storytelling is what we've been doing around the campfires for probably a hundred thousand years. It is, our minds are wired to make use of stories. So stories are incredibly persuasive. And I bet you that I could have given you a list of facts about human trafficking
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they, they don't move you, but you hear stories and, and they do move you. So, uh, and by the way, I don't think I'd get invited on any podcasts if I didn't have stories to tell.
2: Mm. Well, I mean
1: so, so I'm as big a believer in stories as a, as a tool for persuasion I mean there are others I mean maybe I could say uh yeah you know, here's a hundred thousand dollars please what I do what I want you to do but that doesn't take you very far
2: mm-hmm.
1: but a story can a story you know when we make decisions i I've actually studied this in speech classes and I've even given speech classes but what moves people to act is their emotions, not not their brains. I mean, maybe one percent of the people act because of because of just being rational. But I think I I do believe that people who study this say that for most people, it's it's going after your heart that moves people to actually act rather than just think about it. So mm-hmm. uh, I I as I'm repeating myself, but I'm as big a fan of storytelling as, as you can find.
0: So I'm I'm curious because I'm a, a, a engineering a engineer by trade. So I'm yeah, learning I love the,
1: engineers. Oh yeah, they can I'm make like, the world I'm, go round.
0: Right. I, I, so I'm learning the craft of telling stories and asking interesting questions, making engaging content and so forth. But you hang out with the likes of Mark Victor Hansen and you know, professional storytellers, you know, the creator of chicken soup with soul. So I'm curious to you know from your perspective sort of what what is, um, how do you go about making storytelling more effective in the social media world? Do you guys okay, ever talk I- about that sort of, sort of uh, at the dinner table? Like, how do you actually be more impactful using all these mechanisms, you know, technology, social media, and so forth that allows you to make the kind of impact that you want to make? I'm curious.
1: Okay, if somebody really wants to develop that I have recommendation, it's it's a big, large-scale investment in time and money, but the National Speakers Association, I think it has somewhere around 5,000 members, give or take. They put a huge amount of effort into teaching people how to tell stories, how to be engaging, how to, and here, here's some of the things that I picked up from my membership. I've been a member for five years, but one of them is the deeper it comes from you, the deeper it reaches your audience. Mm. So tell something that, that, that moves you, because if you're just like reading off a laundry list of facts, uh, somebody else's, pro- yeah, your audience is probably thinking of their shopping list or something rather than really listening to you. Another, another thing that's really good and impactful, be in the moment. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. I have, I, have, I have a way of getting at what it means to be in the moment. You've listened to improv? You know people are just humorous like on demand.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: One of the things that makes that so impactful is because you see the person's mind at work. you're 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 living through it. It's like walking on a higher wire without without a net. it's It's just so much more impactful than somebody who's reading a speech. So mm-hmm. to the extent that you can be spontaneous and you know be like an improv person, the better off you are. Mm. Other things that are just super, and again, I'm I'm sharing things that I've learned as a member of the National Speakers Association, telling a story over and over again improves it. And so one of the things that we're recommended to as members of, of the NSA, National Speakers Association, is you should probably have told a story at least 40 times before you're on a stage getting paid for it. And you Mm. start out with, you know, you're having coffee with your best friend and you say, hey, I had a funny thing happen. And then you tell the story and you Mm. see how much they like it. Well, after you've told it with a few friends, uh, maybe you try your material out on Rotary or or the Elks or or a service club. And anyway, tell it 40 times before it's the big, important audience that you really care about, because the more you tell it. Yeah. There's a funny thing that happens. The more you tell it, the more you can live it, the more you can forget the words, you just come out with it because Mm. it's on the tip of your tongue. So Mm. practice, practice, practice is one of the big secrets of storytelling. And then, okay. And then let me give you the best. Yes. You're ready for the best.
0: Let's go for it.
1: All right. The essence of every story is you've got to have conflict. You've got to have a like resolution. So Mm. here's a way that they express it, whatever story you're trying to tell, check with yourself just in your own mind. Is this carrying out the following like diagram? And it's this, your hero is walking along ordinary day. you get got him run up a tree, maybe dogs are chasing or something. So he's up a tree and then you throw stones at him. You know, you make it worse and worse. What's gonna to happen to him? And then, uh, you get him down from the tree and he goes on his way uh, but he's different in some way and that's the essence of every story they you know, the, there's the hero and oh, it could be a woman but let's for the sake of making it simple let's say it's a guy and walking along gets scared up a tree people are throwing stones at him that's the conflict and then the resolution is he comes down from the tree and continues his life, but in some way wiser, smarter, better. You know, in some way changed.
0: Mm, is that not a
1: cool, like, explanation of what a story is?
0: Absolutely, I love it. It essentially really summarized the hero's journey. Yeah. Know, in, yeah. in, in in three bullet points. So I'm actually curious. You're about to turn eighty, by the uh-huh. way. You don't you don't look eighty at all, like, for sure. Hey. <laughs> um,
1: well, I, I can tell you why.
0: Yeah, go for it, please.
1: Eat chicken.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: My, my family's in the chicken business.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so I'm curious, you know, reflecting upon your own life. You know, your own life your late husband's life, your father's life, right? What would you characterize as their ability or even your ability to to be resilient? you know when it comes to facing adversity because a lot of people listening right now are probably facing some adversity whether it's due to covid or their psychological of staying at home or or friction with a spouse or oh. you know or business issues so so it's trying time for for a lot of people so how would you reflecting on the hero's journey of yourself your late husband and your father what can you tell us a story about facing adversity?
1: Yeah, I'd love to start off with my father. And by the way, I wrote a book with Mark Victor Hansen about this. It's called How to Be Up and Down Times. That's right. But to to quickly tell the story of my father, he was the co-founder of the Sheraton Hotels, along with my uncle. And at the time of his death, the family owned 400 hotels. And we did sell them, so I'm no longer connected with Sheraton. But I did get to watch up close and personal what father was like and how he did it and and here's his story and it is sort of the hero's story the adversity for him was when he was 26 years old he just couldn't figure out what he wanted to do in life actually he couldn't figure out i mean he hadn't been a success at anything Uh, he just moved from one thing to another and couldn't stick and uh He finally, kind of out of desperation because he's 26, he wanted to get married and start a family, and yet if you can't hold a job, that's that's a problem. So he went to the Yellow Pages or whatever the equivalent was in 1923. Golly, that's almost 100 years ago, 97 years ago. Anyway, he went to the Yellow Pages and he found a career guidance counselor. The man's name was Johnson O'Connor. And he went to Johnson O'Connor saying, you know, what do I need to do? I, I, I can't stick with anything. I'm not holding a job. I'd, I'd like to get married and have kids, but you can't do that if you can't hold a job. Now, what's wrong? So Johnson O'Connor spent an entire day putting him through all sorts of tests. And at the end of that, Johnson O'Connor told my father, Ernest Henderson, you have the worst human relations skills I've ever come across. Now, how's that for adversity? How's that for a kick in the teeth?
0: I, I can relate to that. I can totally relate to that.
1: Actually, I wonder how many, you know, his, his background, by the way, was MIT in electrical engineering. Oh,
0: perfect, yeah, yeah I,
1: so, I I mean,
2: it. yes. So uh-huh. he had
1: to be like the ultimate nerd, but with, mm-hmm. with the worst human relations skills that Johnson O'Connor had ever come across. Well, I think, oh, oh. Johnson O'Connor, you know, since he's there for career guidance counseling, uh, told my father, yeah, you're clearly a smart fellow, no ability to get along with people. I think what you should do for the rest of your life is find a job in a laboratory where you never have to interact with anybody else and just do your science thing. And your father could have done that. I'm glad he didn't because I wouldn't have had a really cool, fun childhood. (laughs) But... Here's what Father did. And he told me about this. So, you know, I know firsthand. Father told me that when he looked around the world, and you know, he wanted to make something of himself. When he looked around the world, he kept coming up with the following conclusion. Whatever, yeah, you know, whatever sort of train of thought he had, it always came back to, if you want to be a success, you have to get along with people. <coughs> and if his people skills were so bad, well, he better do something about it. And as far as I can tell, the rest of his life was devoted to learning what makes people tick. Mm. Uh, And he started by like studying psychology books, which he had never done before. He'd take salesmanship courses with the idea that you can't be a good good salesman if you don't have a really good understanding of of people. So Mm. public speaking, psychology, salesmanship, uh, reading biographies, just studying. And he told me that you know the book, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Mm-hmm. He not only took the Dale Carnegie course, he told me that he'd reread the book every 10 years because his goal was to overcome his deficit of having human relations skills that were the worst that that Johnson O'Connor had ever seen. But where did that take him? Well, he was supposed to have a career as a scientist in a laboratory where he wouldn't interact with anybody. Instead, his greatest deficit, which is not being able to get along with people or understand them, but by, by sheer study and effort, it became his greatest asset. And so he ended up in the hospitality industry, hiring people, working with people, being a great host. And you know, you, I, I used to try to calculate that how many people, at least in the United States, interact with it, as many people as the head of a major hotel company did? I mean, maybe a national politician, but the number of people that Father, like, would speak with or, you know, public speaking or glad-handing as a host, you know, it's just endless. And he was he was spectacular at it, but he overcame a really severe deficit to become outstanding at it.
0: Mm. Thank you for sharing that story. So if I'm hearing you right, based on reflecting on your father's, overcoming his his adversity of not having people's skills, is dedication, studying it and keep iterating? Is that what I'm hearing correctly?
1: Exactly and precisely. And may I give you an example of of how this actually played out in real life and made money for him? Go for it. Okay, and and it's something that anybody else can copy. I mean, they can copy the principle anyway. And it's the following. I used to ask him as a little girl. It was just a really good way of getting parental attention. There were five of us, and this was my way of getting attention. Uh, I'd ask him why he did things. You know, What made you a success, daddy? And he'd give different answers because it wasn't just one answer. But one of them he told me was what he'd do when he'd take over a hotel. And he began in the Great Depression where Nobody was buying hotels and everybody was trying to unload them because you couldn't make money in the hotel business if if nobody came to the hotels. It was sort of like it has a lot in common with COVID-19. People just weren't coming to hotels. And back then it wasn't because of disease. It was because of the economic. The economy was in shambles. So how could he make a hotel a success when everybody else was failing? And here's a story that he told me. He said whenever he'd take over a hotel, and it would usually be one that was close to bankruptcy, the day he took possession, he'd invite all the employees into the hotel ballroom. And he knew ahead of time that every one of them was you know, just totally demoralized because they're thinking, I'm going to be fired. And I'm not going to be able to find another job because there's 25% unemployment. And so he knew going in that the people that he's facing are just as I said, as demoralized as possible. And he knew that, he understood that because you know he had made it his business to try to figure out what people are thinking and feeling. And knowing that, the first words out of his mouth when he's addressing you know, 400, 800 people was, I want every one of you to keep your jobs. And instantly that means that they've gone from just utter misery to, oh, What a relief, you know, I don't have Mm. to face my my spouse or worry about putting food on the table, I'm keeping my job. But that's the beginning. Father would go on to say, I want you to keep your job because I know that you know your job better than anybody else in the whole world. And my job is to give you the resources and the encouragement to show the world just how good you are. And you're going to see that, you know, in the next few months, we're gonna be the most popular hotel in the whole city. And not only that, we're gonna turn things around and we'll be an example for the rest of the city that you know, terrible and toughest times are during the great depression. Mm. Terrible as things are, uh, things can turn around and you'll see the hotel's gonna be financially stable and we'll be an example to the rest of the city.
2: Mm.
1: Well, imagine you know, the people who are trooping in you know, at the beginning of this talk you know, they're, they're miserable and they walk out knowing that the big boss believes in them. But that's only the small part of the story, because the bigger part of the story that he told me was the next day, those same employees would see yeah just dozens and dozens and dozens of like decorators or plumbers or electricians, you know, doing whatever it takes to refurbish a hotel that's been on the verge of bankruptcy. But the good part of of this, of what they'd be seeing, is those decorators, plumbers, electricians, whoever else, they didn't even go to the areas that the public would see. They'd go to the areas that only the employees would see, like the employee lockers, showers, dining rooms. And so I asked Father, why did you put so much money into areas that the public would never see. I mean, you wouldn't get your money back. This seems backwards to me. Mm. And he explained, he said that, well, he always felt that the success of the hotels were the the people who worked there. And he wanted to signal to them how important they were to him. Mm. And he said, people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. Mm. And he wanted to show them by putting his first money into the locker rooms, showers, dining rooms, and so on, Mm, mm, how important mm. they were and how much he believed in them.
0: Mm, mm. I appreciate that so much. Your father was a very astute student of human nature.
1: But I don't think, you know, none of his competitors knew knew those approaches. I think he only knew them because he had to work to learn to understand other people. But he, mm. you know, at the end of his life, he said, whatever success I've had, at and at, at every level, it's the employees who made Jarrett and his success, not me.
0: Mm. I love that. And in one of the that one of the key lessons I actually learned from that story is you 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 were quoting in, in another podcast, is your father said, a leader's job is to give people better visions of themselves.
2: Yeah,
1: he used to say that. With, yeah, with the attitude that he had, you know, I believe in you, uh, we're part of a team that's going to make this the best, uh, you know, the best hotel in the area. He said that it's much better for everybody if, say, the maid who's who's making a bed or the bartender who's mixing drinks or the, the porter who's carrying your bags, whatever, if they're working to make, as a team, to make the best hotel in the city you know everybody's excited to come to work everybody wants to go beyond uh, you have know, to go above and beyond and go the extra mile and it's that energy that makes the hotels a success and he did this 400 different times I mean it worked that what I've just described or actually and quoting you who was quoting me uh, a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves Uh It worked over and over and over and over and over again. It worked, give people a better vision of themselves and do that by showing how important they are, showing how you value them, giving them the resources to show the world just how good they are.
0: Yeah, so uh, uh, let's segue for a bit because I'm curious to know not just the part where your late husband, your father, and you being the shiny beacon of possibility for the people who are counting on than you, but also the sort of the burden as well, right? Cause he's responsible for employees of 400 hotels. I mean, God, that's I, one can imagine that like how much pressure that is. So can you share with us a little bit maybe of that the time we ha- may have witnessed your late husband, your, your, your father may have like carried that burden as well as what did they do to tactically relief have like a relief valve so then they they can you know go back to being that shiny beacon as well does that make sense oh perfectly
1: yeah my late father had had many hobbies and he'd just throw himself into them and i think that he did it you know partly because he enjoyed them but i also think that you can't you can't be at defcon is it one the whole time no uh you you can't be at a high adrenaline level the whole time, or you'll wear out. And so, father was was very good about about how. I mean, he he had hobbies like photography. He loved he loved to learn about ancestry. Uh, he liked history. Frank Purdue was the same. And I used to think Frank Purdue at the end of his days had responsibility for twenty thousand people. And I used to think you know when you make a decision, or maybe you tick off the wrong politician or something. You have on your shoulders that, you know, if, if you get it wrong, people will lose their jobs. They won't be able to pay for their kids' college, uh, or their mortgages, or whatever. I I used to think that the pressure I knew he was under to to get it right that I couldn't I couldn't personally, I mean, with my personality, I couldn't endure it for five minutes. And yet he had to like carry the responsibility for twenty thousand people. And like my father, he had hobbies, like he loved to, to read about the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. I used to think towards the end of his days that there wasn't any major current book written on any of the founding fathers that Frank hadn't read. He was also interested in military history. He One of his hobbies was uh, treasure hunting and not in the sense that he himself would go out and dig up lost ships or something, but he would he would finance.
0: Uh, Mm. treasure
1: hunters. And that's paid off because the sunken treasure ship, Uh, Atocha, when it was found in today's dollars, it was worth a couple of billion dollars. Mm. And Frank was one of the major backers of that. And that surely was exciting stuff. So, you know, this is is something that I advise absolutely everybody, whether you've got 20,000 employees or just yourself, uh, mm. if times are tough and I, COVID-19, how about they are tough just by definition? I mean, maybe somebody you love is ill. Maybe you're worrying about paying the rent. I don't know what your particular issue is, but to the extent that you possibly can give yourself respite, it's medically necessary. And I don't know what your respite would be, but you know, maybe it's, and I'll tell you what mine is. I love watching baby fawns on YouTube.
0: Baby what? <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: Baby, baby deer.
0: Oh, um, no kidding.
1: I mean, because you're just so cute and you... But I'm not going to recommend that to everybody. Everybody's got his or her own. Uh, mm. I also like watching James Bond or... Uh, no
0: kidding. All right. Well,
1: if you're watching a James Bond, even if you've seen it four times, mm. you're if you're really into watching James Bond...
0: <laughs> Who's your favorite Bond, by the way? Favorite Bond?
1: Oh, Sean, Sean Connery.
0: Sean Connery. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh but remind me the name of the current one. I'm I'm not thinking of it at the moment.
0: I uh, love it dearly. I think I he's the see- second best. Yeah, I could see his face. Daniel Craig.
1: Daniel Craig. Oof. I think he's terrific too. But yeah. but anything that gives you an escape so that while you're engaged in this escape activity, uh you're not chewing yourself up with, with nervousness and anxiety and you know, where's the rent or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um it's I I have a na- a niece who runs a nursing home. And she says the people who are caregivers who don't fit into their day an hour or two of being removed from the stress of of having somebody's life in their hands, Mm -hmm. uh, they may die sooner than the person they're caring for.
0: That's right. On the
1: other hand, if they will deliberately and considering it medically necessary, give themselves an hour or two of maybe watching a movie, maybe having drinks with a friend, you know, just something... That gives you time to have your stress hormones go down. You'll live yeah. longer, and you'll be able to co- to cope with, with whatever it is that's eating you alive. You'll you'll cope better if you give yourself a respite.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, one thing on this podcast we talk a lot about is not just a solo activity, but also doing it with friends. Um, you know, using technology like podcasting or Clubhouse as a way to. know find like-minded people so you can not just be in one's head all day so for sure thank you so much for sharing i'm also watching at time do you mind if i ask you some some rapid fire questions is that go for it
1: by the way can i can i ask uh our audience something about
0: oh that's uh, right yes you want to tell that story please do
1: okay uh Gosh, I think I have to take my headphones off for this. We'll find out what happens, because I'll put them right back on again. But I think you can hear me, and I won't be able to hear you. Here goes. I can
0: hear you perfect, yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, what you see here is a bandana. And it's taken from Rosie the Riveter, who was a character from, you Now she was a real person, back from World War II. And Rosie the Riveter did something extraordinary. And Rosie the Riveter really stands for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of women during World War II, who left their homes to work in the factories. Uh, And by working in the factories, they freed the men to go off and defeat Nazism, which was at the time, you know, just the worst thing that could happen to the world. They helped win World War II. Well, in kind of admiration of Rosie the Riveter, Win This Fight, one of the volunteers who works for Win This Fight, her name is Margot Dusterhouse, she thought, "Wouldn't it be cool if, sort of, in remembrance and admiration of Rosie the Riveter, we created Rosie the Liberator?" Oh, I and like Rosie that. the Liberator. What she does is, uh, if if you want to be part of this, and I'd really love you to, because you're going to meet a group of fabulous, fabulous people who are all on the same page. Rosie mm-hmm. the Ro- Rosie the Liberator. Or if it's a guy, it's going to be Rusty the Liberator. Okay, Rosie the Liberator. Let's see if I can get the camera angle right for this. She makes a muscle mm. and then takes a, sna- a selfie of herself. And Rosie the Liberator posts it to her social media along with the hashtag Rosie the Liberator. And then come to winthisfight.org and get us a picture of, of what you posted to social media. Uh, and you'll get to see what, what hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people who are raising awareness about human trafficking what they're doing and mm. you can get to vote on the funniest or the most appropriate or we're even inviting graphic artists to mm. like paint Rosie the Liberator or or make a uh, cartoon of her but just in one way or another come join this group that is raising awareness about human trafficking and if you choose make a $5 donation to the anti-trafficking organization of your choice and It's going to make a difference. Rosie the Riveter left her home to fight Nazism. I'm asking you right now to join a fabulous group of people who are raising awareness about human trafficking. Because human trafficking is never going to be really conquered until people people rise up and say, no, this is awful. We're going to do something about it. So come Mm. join me. I'd love to have you.
0: Mm. I so appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Join Mitzi to, with the fight. Text this number, 51555 with WTF to join the newsletter. Join this, uh, uh, this contest to, to, um, to join this movement for sure. Do you have a few minutes to do some rapid fire still?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Awesome. Thank you. So I'm actually very curious. This, this may or may not be a rapid fire. Uh, Jim Carrey has famously, famously said, everyone wants millions of dollars in the bank the the fame the power and his wish is for people to receive it such that they know that that's not it and you also have shared in your um in your in your podcast somewhere that you share the three things that will not make you happy money power and fame uh, rather it's truth beauty and goodness that's going to make you happy now you're very very fortunate to be born into a family of privilege so you experience firsthand uh, money, power, and fame. So I'm curious to know if you can, being, having been in that position, share the wisdom, the depth of what Plato or Jim Carrey has shared a bit. I think that would be very, very useful.
1: All right. I did grow up with, uh, how about as privileged as, I mean, to be filthy, stinking rich does mean that you're privileged. Yeah. Uh, however, I grew up with a whole Dozens and dozens of people who are in exactly my situation who came from famous wealthy families and the number who did not end up happy is staggering. Uh, money, power and fame are no guarantee of of happiness. In fact, I think. I don't, I'm trying to think if I really mean this. And yeah, I do. I, I think. I think they make you less happy. Mm. Uh, and the problem with money, power, and fame is you always want more mm-hmm. and it just distorts everything unless you have some really rock, rock bottom values. And I think my father was just, and my mother were just you know, very, very strong on teaching us like to be honest, think of others, uh, be generous, get your identity, not from spending money, but by serving. And I would say Frank Purdue was exactly the same in fact, one of Frank Perdue's sayings that that I cherish is if you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. If you really want to be miserable, think what you can think what's owed to you. Mm. And so I think both both families put an enormous effort into getting your meaning out of life by serving others. And my own motto is: success is measured not by what you can get, but by what you can give. Mm-hmm. And I bet you'd be surprised if you saw how middle-class my life is, in spite of my resources. Uh, I live in a building where where my neighbor, like one of them runs a library, another uh, he works in a hospital. Another is, and I'm not clear on what, what the term for it is, but like she she would like a career in the local police department. And you, you aren't an intern, maybe you're on probation. I, I'm not sure what the term is, but uh, if all goes well, she will become a full-fledged police officer, but, but these are not, uh, high society people. They're just people who happen to live in the building that I'm in and I love it. And I wouldn't, yeah, I think I could live anywhere I wanted. This is where I choose Mm, mm. because I don't need a great big fancy McMansion to make me happy.
0: Mm. I mean, I can jam on you for hours just on this. I think, I mean, having had friends who have millions in the bank yet still miserable, and I, I witness it firsthand, I I, I see the, the cost of not having a way to channel their resources to something that's meaningful for them. So for sure. Thank you for sharing well, that.
1: Well, back back to Frank saying, if you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. Mm-hmm. If you want to be miserable, think what's owed to you. I, I'm, I'm so happy not being burdened with loads of, of possessions. I don't own a house. Mm. I, I, this is rental, and it's, and it's not huge, but that means that I can give a lot more resources to what I care about.
2: Mm.
1: When I, I, there was a period of 10 years where I would visit China every year. There was a family there that I became close to and really loved and I'd get invited back year after year. Yay. But first class to China, at least when I was doing it, was $12,000 economy class was Mm $1,000. I never went first class. I never went uh, business class. I always went economy because that meant that there was $11,000 more that I could give to charity. And that gave me a lot more satisfaction than going first class would ever give me.
0: Mm -hmm. I appreciate that.
1: Well, and that's again on the theory that success is measured not by what you can get, but by what you can give.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're exuberant with joy and, and love for human beings, for contribution. I mean, it's very palpable, right? Just- No, I'm so pleased. Time. Yeah. What's, um, what's grace for you? For someone who is full of grace, what's grace? How do you define grace?
1: Now, it's funny that you mentioned that because I have a list that's attached to the shelf behind my, my computer. And one of them is uh, be graceful. And that doesn't mean just, uh, let's see if I can get, that just doesn't mean uh, graceful gestures. No, I think grace is, how about kindness, consideration, caring for others? To me, grace is, maybe it's a state of mind rather than how your body moves.